Hi, my name is Evan. In reference to a time when even the inanimate, like an AI, will help to bring out the divine wisdom, Evan Mikir Tizak. Thank you for joining our shiur on the Mimer Basiligani from Yud Shvat 5724. Should you have any questions or wish to explore this mimer further, feel free to WhatsApp me at 202-769-4101 for a more personalized sheer experience. We start with Basilegani, which means I have come to my garden. This is a special mimer which was prepared for the day that marks the yard site of the previous Rebbe. The Rebbe is explaining a passage from the Medrash about God saying, I have come to my garden. This phrase points to the original primary setting of the world where the Iker Shekhinah, God's essential presence, was found. Initially, before the sin of the tree of knowledge, the Shekhinah, in its most intimate and essential form, was here with us on earth, in Gan Eden. However, the sin with the tree of knowledge and the sins that followed drove this primary manifestation of God's presence upward, away from our earthly domain, all the way to the seventh heaven, which is the highest spiritual realm. But the story doesn't end there. Righteous individuals, the tzaddikim, through their devoted service to God, began this tremendous spiritual effort to draw this core divine presence back down, pulling it from the heavens to earth. This journey culminating with Moshe Rabbeinu, who, as the seventh righteous leader from Avraham, managed to bring this essential aspect of the Shekhinah down to earth, thus embodying God's original intent. All sevenths are precious. There's this notion that the seventh in any series has particular significance. So Moshe managed to bridge that vast divide completely, pulling the Shekinah down from the spiritual realm right back here to earth. And this is what is written. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Meaning that the righteous, in addition to the righteous of the aforementioned generations, also the righteous of every generation and even indicating every member of your people are all righteous, continue the avodah of drawing down the aspect of the one who dwells on high and is holy to be revealed below. To translate and explain this within our framework, this passage reflects on a verse that implies the ongoing work of manifesting godliness in the world through the actions of the righteous. It suggests that in addition to the historical tzaddikim, each generation's righteous people, and even broadly encompassing the inherent righteousness of every individual Jew, contribute to making the Shekinah visible and tangible in our everyday lives here on earth. The phrase, your people are all righteous, highlights the essential divine nature inherent to every Jew, which constitutes the potential for righteousness and the revealing of godliness that each person carries. The work we're talking about goes through two phases, Iskafia and Ishapkab. Uh, so Iskafia is subduing or repressing the negative inside us. Think of it as resisting the urge to do something that's not in line with God's will. And Ishapka, after one's managed to hold back the negative tendencies, completely transforming those energies into something good and holy. So through this avoda of subduing Iskafia and transforming Ishapka, something sublime happens. The mimer uses the phrase Istalek Yekaradukudshabrihu, which describes how the preciousness of the Holy One, blessed be He, ascends throughout all the worlds. Now, here, ascending really means becoming more revealed, reaching an even more elevated and awesome state of revelation. In other words, by doing the spiritual work of transforming our lower nature into something divine, we're not just changing ourselves, we're revealing God's light, His essence, throughout every level of existence. 
It's like we're unlocking godliness everywhere from the bottom all the way to the top. Now we turn to a key element that sums up the central theme of our discussion, and it revolves around the phrase, Veshachanti Besocham. It's what God says in the Torah about the Mishkan, which means the tabernacle, and later about the Beis Hamikdash, the holy temple. I will dwell among them. But let's really think about what this means, because there are two layers here, two interpretations that we need to grasp. Firstly, Veshachanti, the dwelling of God, initially, after the Jews left Egypt, refers to the building of the Mishkan and later of the Beis Hamikdash. It was in these sanctified spaces that the primary divine presence in the lower realms was manifest after their construction. So, on one level, the divine presence is all about physical places where holiness is concentrated. But there's more to it. The word bisokam doesn't literally translate to within it, but within them, within each and every one of the Jewish people. This teaches us something profound. Through our own personal spiritual work, we each become a sanctuary for the Shekinah. The divine presence rests within us. This is about the intimately personal aspect of our connection to God, how each person is a dwelling place for the divine. Moreover, it's not just about individuals. In addition to the personal work of each Jew, the collective service of the entire Jewish people has an effect. Together, we bring forth the plain and simple meaning of Veshachanti, making a dwelling place for God in the physical dimensions of the Mishkan and Beis Hamikdash. So, putting it all together, we see a beautiful and comprehensive picture. On the one hand, God dwells in the physical sanctuaries that we build for Him, a place for everyone to experience His presence. But on the other hand, the real work we're focused on here is about creating a space for God within our own lives within each one ourselves, making that divine connection a living reality that touches every part of who we are. Our personal avoda, our service to God, makes us each a mishkan, a place where the shkina, the essence of God, shines forth and dwells forever. And here, the mimer brings us to one of the primary forms of service that was performed in the Mishkan, and that's the concept of the karbonos, the sacrifices. Now, you might think sacrifices are just about bringing animals or other offerings to the altar. But it's deeper than that. The Hebrew word carbon comes from the root karev, which means to draw near or to come close. Every carbon is really about creating closeness between us, here down below and the one above. Rabbeinu Bachaya, in his commentary, citing the Zohar, explains that this is the inner essence of bringing a sacrifice. It's about creating a connection. Continuing in the Mimer, it talks about the overall purpose of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and brings a verse. Make the planks for the Mishkan of acacia wood standing upright. Now, interestingly, the word shatim, which describes the type of wood used, is linguistically related to shtus, which means foolishness. In this context, shtus is about deviation, straying from the straight path of righteousness and truth. This connection is reinforced by a saying from our sages, one does not commit a sin unless a spirit of folly enters into the individual. So what's the avoda, the spiritual work in this context? It's about flipping this entire concept on its head. It's about transforming this shtuz, this tendency to deviate into something holy, into the actual planks that were used to build the mishkan. This transformation is a profound act of spiritual service, taking something that's initially seen as negative or a diversion and converting it into a central component of holiness, into part of a dwelling for the divine in this world. 
So, in essence, even the parts of us that lead us astray, that folly that can result in wrong actions, can be transformed into building blocks of sanctity. The mimer emphasizes that this is precisely the kind of service needed to make the dwellers of this earth part of the divine plan. The mimer further delves into the significance of the term krashim, planks, used to build the mishkan, pointing out a fascinating detail. The word koresh consists of the same letters as sheker, falsehood which is the total opposite of Amos Hashem Le'olam, God's unwavering truth. It highlights a profound teaching. Our task is to transform the sheker of the world, the falsehood and deception that we encounter, turning it into Keresh for the dwelling of holiness, for the Mishkan and the Mikdash, holy temple. This point underscores the notion that the Mishkan, which is called a Mikdash, a holy place, and the Mikdash, which is also referred to as a Mishkan, both signify a place where the Shekinah, the divine presence, is evident, Veshakanti, and I will dwell. We are tasked with this pivotal transformation to take the falsehoods, the distortions, and confusions of the world and redirect them into becoming structures that hold the divine presence. This process of transformation allows us to create a space, a mishkan, where God feels at home and his shkina can rest upon us. Now, since the spiritual work is to fix the folly that is below intellect, the service we do needs to be the kind that directly addresses this folly. That means regular, rational effort isn't enough. The service must transcend understanding and knowledge. And here's where it brings in a powerful example from the Rambam. He tells us that even though the straight path is usually the path of moderation, if you find yourself at one extreme, it's not enough to just move to the middle. You need to go as far as the opposite extreme. And this idea is even more applicable when dealing with shtus de kedusha, with holy folly that counters the worldly folly and falsehood. So to transform this folly into a mishkan, into a place where God can dwell, our avoda must go beyond reason, even beyond the logic and understanding that normally guide our actions. It's this idea that the Gemara in Kesubos talks about when it says his folly was effective for him, referring to the sage who did something that seemed silly but was actually being effective in enhancing a wedding celebration. In other words, we're pulling out all stops. To make the world a dwelling place for the Shekinah, we can't just operate within the usual bounds of logic. We're called to embrace Shtustikadusha, where our actions are driven by a super-rational commitment to holiness. From this, we understand also what's behind that, that those who are capable of performing this kind of service are referred to as Tzivos Hashem, which can be translated as the armies of God or hosts of the Lord. Now, why are they called that? Because within any army, the warriors go into battle fully committed, ready to put their lives on the line for victory. This is what we call commitment that goes beyond logic and understanding, service beyond reason. The mimer is pointing out that true victory in battle, a spiritual battle in this case, can't be achieved any other way. To truly win, you have to be ready to give it your all, even if it means sacrificing your life. This deep level of commitment is not just for a select few. It's actually the essence of every Jew. That's why we are all called Sivos Hashem, as the Tanya teaches that even the simplest Jew is ready to make the ultimate sacrifice for the sanctity of God's name. It means every single one of us has this potential for self-sacrifice embedded within, ready to go beyond our own understanding and even our own survival instinct for the sake of something higher. This collective theme of Sivos Hashem encapsulates our mission. 
to put everything on the line to transform the world and reveal godliness within it. We go on to explain that for the victory in warfare, there is a concept of a treasure that is given from above. The Hebrew term is otzar. This is likened to a war among human kings, where even those treasures that were untouched until then, not only his own treasures, but also the treasures that his ancestors have amassed, which are so dear to him that he doesn't even display them. When it comes to securing victory in war, he puts his very life on the line and he extravagantly exhausts all his riches and those precious treasures accumulated by his forebears. By doing so, he secures the victory in warfare. In spiritual terms, the use of the term mev azvez intimates not a careful allocation of resources, but a reckless outpouring. It signifies a total commitment to the cause where every endowment, no matter how concealed or sacred, is harnessed for the greater mission of winning the battle. This metaphor sheds light on the intensity of self-sacrifice expected in the face of spiritual adversity. Mesiru's nefesh is not a measured risk, but a profound willingness to go to any length, deploying every asset available for the ultimate purpose of manifesting the Shekinah in the material world. The concept of bizbuz, typically associated with wastefulness, here suggests a paradox where the ultimate victory in the spiritual struggle is achieved not through cautious conservation, but through the full uninhibited deployment of one's deepest reserves. This act becomes an expression of netzach, the eternal aspect of the soul's victory that can reach the deepest parts, transforming the potential squandering into an act that secures eternal triumph and divine revelation within the world. The concept of victory, we explain, derives from the internal faculty called netzach, which touches the deepest part of the soul. Consequently, the greater a person's stature, the deeper the potential for this quality of victory within them. This is along the lines of what our sages have said. Any Torah scholar who does not avenge and bear a grudge like a serpent is not truly a Torah scholar. This attitude is considered a virtue in the context of victory, although those acts of avenging and bearing a grudge must be understood and conducted in accordance with the rigorous conditions detailed in the Gemara and Poskim. In other words, the quality of netzach hinges on one's connection to their innermost spirit and the intensity with which they pursue spiritual triumphs. The reference to the vengeful serpent metaphorically illustrates a passionate commitment to defending and upholding the Torah's sanctity, hinting that spiritual victory requires a formidable and unwavering inner resolve, all the more so with regard to a king whose head and shoulders above all the people, including the ministers, the quality of victory is inherent within him with great potency. From the perspective of this faculty of victory, not only does he reveal and share those treasures which no eye has ever seen, but he also extravagantly squanders them and distributes them through the ministers of the army who are coordinating the efforts for the sake of the foot soldiers who are precisely the ones who bring about victory. That is to say, Although the officials of the army are knowledgeable in all the areas of war tactics, those who actually effectuate the victory are the soldiers who sacrifice their lives in reality, as is also explained at the end of the discourse marking the Yart site. The mimer emphasizes that the true victory is not achieved by mere planning or knowledge, but by those who put their lives on the line in the battlefield. The king, due to his inherent quality of a netzach, is compelled to use his most private and valuable treasures not only because of his elevated status but to ensure the decisive victory, 
relying on the courage and selfless commitment of the warriors who execute the battle plans. From this, it becomes clear that in order for the children of Israel to achieve victory in the war of transforming the falsehood of the world into planks for the Mishkan, a place where the aspect of Veshachantis will be realized, they are given from above not only matters that are within the realm of revelation, they are also given such things that would be compared in our terms to the concept of a treasure, which is hidden and sealed away from the eyes of anyone except for the king himself. That is to say, this is something that is above all matters of revelation, even revelation at its highest level. This passage conveys that for the Jewish people to succeed in their spiritual battle, to convert the pervasive deceptions of the mundane world into a structure that houses the divine presence, the Mishkan, they require divine assistance that goes beyond what is readily evident or revealed or even extant. They are endowed with celestial help likened to a king's secret treasury, profound spiritual qualities and resources that are usually concealed from view, akin to the most private royal treasuries not accessible by the general public but only by the king. In spiritual work, these godly endowments are likened to treasures that surpass even the highest levels known to us. The sum of all revelations signifying that the aid given to Israel to achieve their divine purpose is of an extraordinary transcendent nature, even loftier than the most elevated revelations we can conceive. Now, the highest level in terms of revelation is a revelation that is endless and boundless. This is brought forth in the mimer from a passage written in the Tikkunei Zohar, stating that the infinite light, or Ein Sof, extends upward to no end and downward to no limit. This means that since it is called light, we understand that it is in fact within the framework of revelation, because the definition of light is revelation. However, this is not ordinary light or revelation, but rather it's called infinite Ein Sof, as it goes above to no end and below to no limit. In other words, the mimer is describing the most supreme form of divine manifestation, which is the infinite light, unrestricted, reaching both the loftiest spiritual heights and the deepest corporeal depths with equal measure. This infinite light is the ultimate form of divine presence that is both revealed and concealed throughout all levels of reality. The mimer explains the magnitude of this concept, beginning with the clarification of lamata adein tachlisu, meaning down to the very lowest levels within the order of creation, in this lower world, which is the world of Asiya, action. And within this world of Asiya, not only matters of holiness and that mundane which is permissible and within our disposal, rishus, but also the concept of klipa, negativity, literally husks or impure shells, which are also relevant to the world of Asiya. Moreover, it involves matters even lower than the klipa. As explained in Tanya, a person who sins and transgresses the will of God is considered far worse and lower than the sitra achra and klipas. This is because the klipas fulfill the role for which they were created, which is twofold. Not only the aspect of the klipa that serves as a protective shell for the fruit, the inner holiness, but also the function of klipa as tempting and luring one to transgress God's will, analogous to a zona hired by the king to test his son, whereby she fulfills the king's command, as opposed to one who sins and transgresses God's will, who ends up even lower than the above. And in that context itself, there is a format in which one sins in areas which counter holiness or in mundane matters. 
yet there is also a manner which is lower than this. Using matters of holiness to do the opposite of what God wants is likened to holding the head of the king and submerging it down, etc., as the Tanya concludes. This is explained in the Mimer mentioning a scenario in which using the authority of Torah, one issues a ruling that is the opposite of the Torah, that this is also included in the concept of Lamata Mata down to the very bottom, and this is where we left off in the first 13 chapters of the Discourse. As we embark on section base, section two of the Mimer, it is crucial to recall the foundational concepts we have explored until now. The Shekinah's initial rest within this earthly realm, its concealment due to humanity's shortcomings, and the ongoing efforts by every generation to draw it back down through their service of transforming the physical into a home for the divine. Section base delves deeper into the understanding of divine vitality within creation, emphasizing that the radiance of the divine light is extended, nimshak, to create and enliven all beings from absolute nothingness, ex nihilo, based on the mimer from the previous Rebbe. Here we examine the continuation of this divine service, not merely within the framework of lofty spiritual matters, but extending to every facet of existence, including those which seem most distant from holiness, and reading inside. The mimer continues in chapter 14, and, and indeed in all of this it is written, and you give life to them all, veatamekayechiskulam. The illumination of the divine light certainly extends to create and give life to all created beings from nothingness, as stated in Igoris HaKodesh, end of section 20, that an illumination from that very light exists within all created, formed, and made beings, etc., which is the divine light and vitality that extends to all created beings, as per the saying, that feeds and provides from the horns of wild oxen to the eggs of lice, indicating that the light and the vitality shine and extend even to the lowest and humblest levels, as it is written, If I ascend to heaven, there you are, and if I descend to the grave, behold, you are present. This means that even though there are things that are at the very bottom, as was explained above at length in several degrees in this downward direction, still these very matters are included in what is written, and you give life to them all all precisely, including even those matters that are at the very bottom, even klipos, and even those things that are lower than klipos, which refer to those who transgress the divine will, as explained later in sections 4 to 5. In this new section, we are presented with a beautiful depiction of God's omnipresence and his ongoing act of creation. The message is clear. Every being from the most exalted to the humblest creature is given life through God's energy. The depth of this idea cannot be overstated. God's sustaining power transcends all levels, reaching even those lower than the klipos, which try to obscure his light. The discussion is anchored in a citation from Igeris HaKodesh, section 20, which explains that this emanation of light and vitality permeates all created, formed, and made beings without exception. It corroborates the vast inclusivity of God's sustaining power manifesting in entities from the highest spiritually refined to the lowest and humblest of creatures. Thus, Section B's of the Mimer contributes a deeper insight into the divine infusion of life throughout every facet of existence, strongly asserting that every aspect of creation, no matter how seemingly insignificant or even contrary to holiness, is sustained by God's vivifying presence. Section Gimel opens with a deep theological reflection on the nature of divine vitality and its manifestation within creation.
The discussion is anchored in the insight that the text Veata Michaia Esculum and You Give Life does not relate directly to God's essence, Atmus, which is beyond any form or symbolism. The term Ata suggests the dimension of letters from Aleph to Tav and the final letter He, which alludes to the five articulations of speech, the source of letters. The significance here lies in the distinction made between the divine essence, referred to as Atmus, which cannot be signified by any letter, etc., and how that essence chooses to be involved in animating creation. Although there is no other entity that gives life to creation apart from Atmus, God chooses to conceal and hide himself within the sublime light in a way that the presence can be ingested within the worlds. The Alter Rebbe underlines that this drawing of vitality to all that is created is facilitated by the enclothement of God's essence through the concealment of the letters. This concept underscores the interplay between the divine essence, which remains hidden beyond comprehension, and its manifested life force that sustains and animates every aspect of existence. Let's read it inside. And the idea in this is that when it says, and you give life, it isn't referring per se to God's essence, Atmos itself, as the Alter Rebbe clarifies in Shar Hayichud Vehaemuna, in explaining Veata Mechaya Eskulam, and you give life to them all. The term and you refers to the aspect of the letters from Aleph to Taf, and the He represents the five articulations of speech, the source of these letters. For Atmos is beyond the idea of letters. It is not symbolized by any letter nor by any crown of the letters. Although there are no other things that vitalize, God forbid, apart from Atmos, echoing the Talmudic principle of attributing actions directly to God rather than his attributes. Nonetheless, the format of vitality can be as God's essence is, as it is, or as the interest of Atmos is to conceal and hide itself within a supreme light before whom darkness is as light. And this is what the Alter Rebbe said, that the word Veata and you refers to the letters, etc. That is to say that the drawing down of vitality within all beings is by the habitation of Atmos to conceal and hide itself through these letters. The Alter Rebbe emphasizes that the term Veata and you indicates this nuanced relationship between the divine essence and its expression via letters that shape the forms and vessels through which divine life is channeled. Thus, even though all vitality is drawn from God's essence, God's plan involves a dynamic interface with creation, a harmonious interplay between revelation and concealment that allows the created beings to receive and have sustained their life. Through this divine orchestration, even the letters themselves become a medium for the concealed essence to vitalize the totality of the universe. Now we want to make a point that while the belief in God as the sole source of all life and existence is a basic tenet of faith, the reference to Veata Mechaya Esculum serves a specific purpose within the discourse. The appeal to this verse underscores the ongoing nature of God's engagement with creation, emphasizing how his sustaining light and vitality reach the furthest extremities of existence, infinitely extending even into the lowest realms. The goal of citing this is not to establish the basic idea of God's oneness and unity, etc., but actually to highlight the concept of divine light. 
and how it penetrates creation unrestrainedly. In the concluding paragraph of section Gimel, the mimer illuminates the difference between the processes of his havas coming into existence and chayus being imbued with life. It outlines a distinction in the way these two processes are revealed or perceived. As expounded elsewhere regarding the coming into existence of created beings, the divine will is that this process occur in such a way that the creator's role remains hidden from the creation. In other words, a creature comes into being and feels itself to be a genuine entity, with no apparent preceding cause or source, as it also appears to outside observers. On the contrary, when it comes to chayus, the sustaining of life, an individual's contemplation on their own life leads to the realization that there must be a life-giving source, though this understanding and sensation are relatively limited. For example, the saying of the earth sprouting vegetation requires specific conditions like varying amounts of rain and heat necessary for different plants to thrive. This leads one to the awareness and understanding that there must be a providential care ensuring that each plant receives precisely what it needs for life. This reflection on life's sustenance leads to the understanding that creation does not generate itself. Therefore, following this understanding of Caius, one arrives at the comprehension that there must also be a creator, a being that brings things into existence as nothing can bring itself into existence. And this is what is said in the verse, Veata Mechaya Eskulam. What's stated explicitly in the verse is, gives life, and then on this comes the teaching, do not read it as gives life, but as brings into existence. As is known, that this manner of teaching does not negate the plain meaning, but adds another dimension to it. The mimer emphasizes that both the coming into being and the vivification of creatures are encapsulated in this verse, as it explains that the divine light, or Ein Sof, extends to bring into existence and to vivify all creations. This profound teaching emphasizes the unity of existence and life as granted by the divine, integrating the dual processes of continuous creation and ongoing sustenance provided by God's infinite light. It highlights the dynamic interplay between the hiddenness of the creator and the apparent autonomy of creation while also intimating God's intimate involvement in the intricate details of the world. This section is critical to the mimer's exploration of Lamata Mata Adain Tachlis because it emphasizes that while God's essence is beyond letters and symbols, it chooses to manifest and sustain the world through them. This manifestation is a form of self-concealment that allows creation to perceive itself as ostensibly independent, while in reality it is wholly dependent on and immersed in the divine. By articulating this concept of God's essence, concealing itself in the creative and vivifying forces expressed as letters, the mimer sets the stage for understanding how God's infinite presence permeates even the lowest levels of existence without being compromised. This explains the expansive reach of God's vivifying force, which extends infinitely to all levels of reality. The distinction between God's transcendent essence and its imminent life-giving expression is a foundational concept for appreciating the subsequent discussions of the mimer. This section sets the stage for exploring how the divine light extends not only to realms of holiness, but reaches into the depths, including the kalipos, and even those things below them highlighting the theme that even the lowest levels of creation are vivified by this same infinite light. 
the discussion of Ve'ata Mechaye Eskulam thus becomes a prelude to understanding how God's presence and vitality are found throughout the entire spectrum of reality from the highest spiritual heights to the darkest depths, without exception. Section Dald expands on the inclusive nature of God's vivifying energy, clarifying that when the verse states Ve'ata Mechaye Eskulam and you give life to them all, it encompasses not only the overtly holy realms and permissible matters, but also the very existence of the klipa, those forces or shells that conceal godliness within the world. This section is foundational for understanding the all-encompassing reach of God's sustenance, emphasizing that every aspect of existence, without exception, is alive because of the divine. This includes the klipos, which are otherwise thought of as obstructions to holiness. By recognizing that these two are kept in existence by God's life force, we grapple with profound theological questions. If God sustains even the klipos, what does this tell us about the role and potential of these klipos within the grand design of creation? How does this understanding influence our approach to evil or negativity encountered in the world? If God's vivacity extends to all, how are we to understand the intrinsic value and potential for redemption within every aspect of creation, even that which seems impure? The discussions invoke the sage's statement that God nourishes all creatures from the mighty horns of the wild oxen, symbolizing grandeur, to the minute eggs of lice, representing the most concealed forms of sanctity. This range from the sublime to the minuscule is mirrored in spiritual terms, from the highest spiritual echelons, suggestive of the sephiros of Kesser, to the elements most hidden within the klipos. Therefore, this section teaches us to adopt a broader vision of God's world, where apparent divisions between sacred and profane are united by the thread of divine life force that sustains them. It challenges us to widen our perspective and see that the work of transformation and elevation is not limited to the realms of manifested holiness, but also extends to the darkest recesses, the Kalipos, awaiting their return to holiness. Now what is written and you give life to them all surely includes not only all the worlds and the matters of holiness and the permissible alone, as we find at times that the implication of the word all is only most or predominantly all, but not literally all, but also includes the matter of the kalipos, for with regard to every existence that there is in the world, not only most of it, including the existence of the klipa, there is a principle that existence does not make itself. Therefore, it must be said that even this existence is included in what is written, and you give life to them all. And on this, the mimer brings from what our sages of blessed memory say, that the Holy One, blessed be he, nourishes and sustains all creatures from the horns of wild oxen to the eggs of lice. The reference to horns of wild oxen to the eggs of lice reiterates the concept that this sustenance spans from the greatest to the most minute within the physical and spiritual domains. Now we delve deeper into the significance of the metaphors presented earlier in the mimer, carne reaimim, horns of wild oxen, and bitse kinim, eggs of lice, which highlight the range of God's creation both in the physical and spiritual sense. In physicality, the horns of wild oxen represent the grandeur of creation, while the eggs of lice indicate the smallest elements. 
These metaphors are paralleled in spirituality as well, shedding light on the vast spectrum between the highest levels of sanctity and the deepest elements of concealment and opposition to godliness. Translating the passage, Indeed, the horns of wild oxen are the greatest of creations, and the eggs of lice are the smallest of creations. As it is in physicality, likewise it is so in spirituality, as physicality cascades from spirituality. As stated in the book Turbarekas, from the disciples of the Ariazal, that the horns of wild oxen are the Sod Eser Krahnos, which is the ten sephiros of Keser, for an ox is exceedingly tall, and its role in the sephiros is the sephirah of Keser. The horns of an ox represent the very highest level within Keser itself, the pinnacle of spirituality. The entirety of creation, from majestic to the seemingly insignificant, is envisioned on a spiritual plane where they correspond to divine attributes. The horns of wild oxen are associated with the sephiros of Keser, representing the most sublime revelation of God's energy, while the eggs of lice symbolize the presence of God even within the klepos, the most hidden and minimal revelations of divinity. This underscores the non-duality of divine sustenance. God's life force supports and nurtures the full diversity and grades of his creation. And the eggs of lice are the smallest of creations also in spirituality, as they are minute in terms of the divinity in them, which is the aspect of the klipa. As stated in Priet's Chaim, in explaining the spiritual nature of lice, lice, kinim, in gematria, numerical value, is 120. And it alludes to the 120 combinations of the name Elohim. This line addresses the other end of the spectrum the eggs of lice as representing the smallest and least significant dimensions in physicality, which also correspond to the most minimal manifestation of spirituality. They symbolize the klipos, where there is the least expression of godliness. We illuminate this concept further by connecting the numerical value of lice to the name of God, Elohim, a name associated with nature and with judgment, highlighting the interplay between concealment and revelation, even at this level of creation. That is, the name Elohim, with the numerical value of nature, is called a shield over the name Havaya, God's essential name. Hence, it is designated by the term Lice, from the language of Kinui, meaning a nickname, because the nickname comes in place of the name and constitutes a loss of the name, as brought in the responsa of Maharik, and as explained by the Magid regarding the matter of Nigadshma Avadshmei that in order to be opposite, as the sages say, the Holy One, blessed be he, traverses 500 years distance down to the very depths in the lower worlds to acquire for himself a name that is achieved through losing the name, meaning that the name is lost and only a kinui remains. The name Elohim, which numerically corresponds to the concept of nature, acts as a protective covering over God's essential name, Havaya. This is why it is likened to lice, a term that implies a diminutive or secondary form, a nickname, as it comes in the place of the actual divine name and represents a concealment of it. This concept signifies that God's journey to manifest his presence in the lowest realms involves a form of self-concealment, where his essential name is not overtly revealed, but present in a hidden or elusive form. And the section finishes... We find that the eggs of lice allude to the concept of the klipos, where the divine light and vitality also extend. As our sages say, there is nothing besides him, even for sorcerers.
thus affirming the fundamental principle that everything without exception is part of God's unified existence. There is nothing apart from him, not even aspects of creation that represent darkness or impurity. To encapsulate, this line from the Mimer points out that the klipos, despite being the most concealed and spiritually distant elements of creation, are still suffused with the divine light and vitality. This powerful idea reinforces the absolute unity of God, asserting that there is no place devoid of his presence, not, not even within the klipos, which includes those forces or elements seemingly opposed to God, like sorcerers. Everything and everyone is a part of the divine reality emphasizing the oneness of God and his omnipresence across the entire expanse of creation. Section Hay shifts the focus of the discussion to the lowest levels of creation, even below the realm of Kalipos that conceal godliness. The first line reads, It has been explained above that the downward flow of divine influence includes not only the Kalipos, but also those elements that are lower than the Kalipos, namely those who transgress against the Creator's will. This statement signals a deepening of our exploration into the relationship between God's will and creation. We have seen that God's life-giving power extends to the entire spectrum of existence, maintaining and vitalizing even the klipos. Now we are delving into the profound idea that God's sustenance extends even to actions and beings that defy his will, those who transgress and sin. Up until this point, the Mimer has discussed the boundless nature of God's vitality and how it extends throughout creation, from the highest spiritual levels to the Kilipos. In section Hay, the Mimer deepens this exploration by considering the divine light's reach into areas that actively defy divine will, a profound step further in understanding God's omnipresence and the potential for elevation in even the most unlikely places. In this section, we aim to explore the paradoxical notion that the very forces that seem to oppose God's will are nevertheless sustained by his infinite light. It's a profound realization that even those elements that seem contrary to God's will are also part of the continuous unfolding of the divine plan, of how God's essence is involved with all of creation, without exception, and how this reality impacts our understanding and offers a broader and all-encompassing view of Teshuvah, the path back to alignment with the divine will. The Mimer continues with the following line, and this is what is further elaborated in the previous Rebbe's Mimer. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, Sheol, behold, you are there. For the concept of Sheol represents the punishment for those who transgress his will. And about this it is said, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. That there too the Or Ein Sof is present. The matter herein, as explained by the Mittler Rebbe in Shar Hatzitzis on the verse, if I ascend to the heavens and if I make my bed in Sheol, both together, just as if I ascend to heaven, there you are. So too, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there, you truly, just as it is found in the heavens. In this line, the mimer broadens the understanding of God's omnipresence by explaining that it extends to all places and circumstances symbolized by heaven and Sheol. Heaven is the epitome of spiritual elevation, while Sheol represents the consequence of sin. Yet, in both God's infinite light, the Or Ein Sof is constant. This teaching emphasizes the principle that God's essence is not altered or diminished by the location or state of creation, affirming that even in realms associated with punishment or spiritual remoteness, God is fully present. 
In addressing this profound presence, the mimer is underscoring God's non-duality and the unity of all existence within that reality. The teaching highlights that God's sustenance is not contingent upon our actions or spiritual standing. God is equally and perpetually present with everyone and in all places, a comforting and challenging notion for our spiritual growth and pursuit of teshuva, repentance. The Rebbe adds in a different mimer an analogy to personal avoda, stating, that is to say, just as the orain sof is above to no end and below to no limit, so too in the service of a person, there is a state of, if I ascend to heaven, there you are, i.e., a manner of above to no end. And there is a state of, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there, a manner of below to no limit. This correlates God's unbounded presence with the states a person can find themselves in during their spiritual service. Much like the infinite light, which is not restricted by the heights or depths within the realm of creation, a person's service to God can take place in conditions reflecting the highest spiritual aspirations or, contrastingly, within the most profound challenges and descents. In this line, the mimer explores a Kabbalistic concept that in the spiritual realm, for every lofty aspect of holiness, there exists an opposing force or reciprocal element, a counterpart, zeh leumas zeh. In the divine design, the profound light and sanctity available at the greatest heights of spirituality are counterbalanced by the potential for opposition at the lowest levels. Reading inside, as explained in detail, the principle of contraries within the divine creation, ze leumas ze, God has made one opposite the other, applies. Therefore, just as in the ultimate heights of holiness, which is the concept of the horns of the wild ox in spirituality. There is the matter of the hairs above, as it is written about Atik, Levushe Kizlag Kiver. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool, which is the concept of the talus and the strings of the tzitzis, representing the greatness and loftiness of the light from above, which is the highest of the high. Due to its immense level, it can only be received through contractions, which are the contraction through the breaks in the skull, after which the growth of the hairs occurs. Similarly, as counterpart and reflection of this, in a place where the drawing down of divinity is in a constriction, when there is an additional constriction, which is the concept of the hairs, then there is grasp and hold and nurturing for the contrary elements. This is manifested in the comparison between the sublime levels of sanctity represented by the horns of the wild ox and the concept of divine constriction symbolized by the hairs. The divine light is so intense and exalted that it requires a process of gradual diminishment, referred to as zimtsumim or contractions, to be receivable. The hairs metaphorically depict this further diminishment, allowing even a minute divine flow to reach and paradoxically provide a possibility of nurture for the opposing or negative forces. Translated into practical terms, this passage suggests that even the most exalted expressions of godliness must undergo successive stages of concealment to interact with lower levels of reality. This dynamic is necessary to prevent an overwhelming influx of divine energy that could not be contained within the less refined spiritual vessels. Just as hair grows from the scalp through the breaks in the skull, representing constraints that allow growth, a similar pattern occurs within spiritual service. 
Moreover, the mimer implies there is a delicate balance to maintain. While constriction serves a purpose, it also creates an opportunity for misuse. To synthesize, this passage teaches us about the importance of recognizing the necessity for balance and constraint within our own spiritual service. We must approach holiness with reverence and continuous mindfulness of the fine line between pure sanctity and the possibility of inadvertently giving strength to negativity. This perspective fosters a respectful and measured approach. As we continue inside, and this is found that hair on a woman is considered erva, nakedness, which is not the case with a nazir for whom it is written, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow long. This is because the hair of a nazir is from the aspect of the hairs of holiness, as opposed to when the hair is in a place where there are contractions and judgments. Then from them is drawn a nurturing for the opposite, which is the lowest depth sheol. This line summarizes the idea that the same concept of hair, which draws vitality, can have different spiritual implications depending on its context. The hair of a nazir, which grows freely in the form of holiness, is a positive mitzvah, with hair in other contexts, more associated with restriction and harsh judgment potentially feeding into the opposite force. This duality highlights the potency and risk of divine energy as it intersects with the physical world, illustrating the delicate balance between holiness and potential impurity in the broader spiritual landscape. However, about this it is said, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. And as Yonah said, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, meaning that even from within Sheol he recognizes he adheres godliness. The reference here to Yonah's experience in the belly of a fish, referred to as Sheol, serves to illustrate that even in the depths of despair, challenge, or punishment, the awareness and acknowledgement of God can arise. In a different mimer, it's noted that for Yonah, being in Sheol was not due to an undesirable act he committed, but rather came about by divine command to save him from drowning. The Rebbe emphasizes that the true novelty is that even when a person finds themselves in Sheol through their sins, God's presence, Hinaka, is still with them. God's presence transcends all circumstances, even those that result from our own missteps. And that prompts a profound contemplation on the inherent potential for teshuva, returning to God, no matter how far one has strayed. The mimer delves deeper into the idea of descent for the purpose of ascent, as the line states, Moreover, as it is written, he brings down, Morid, to Sheol, and brings up Vaya'al. As explained there, that this descent is for the purpose of ascent, and the ascent, Vaya'al, is proportional to the degree of the descent, Morid. That is to say, from the punishment of being brought down to Sheol itself, the ultimate elevation that is achieved through it is appreciated. For it is known that the punishments of the Torah are not merely punishments per se, God forbid, since the Torah is a Torah of kindness. Therefore, even the punishments in the Torah is a matter of kindness, whose purpose is that the individual will be redirected and returned to the good. And to such an extent is the elevation that for that end, it is even worth the experience of being brought down to Sheol, which is even lower than the realm of Klippa, as mentioned above. As our sages say, it is better that he go through judgments and subsequently be permitted into the world to come. And since it's a very severe judgment, it is understood the quality of the pleasure and the good that they reach. This passage from the Mimer points out that the challenging descents, symbolized by the descent to Sheol, serve a purpose. 
they are intended for subsequent elevation. Even the most severe punishments ascribed by the Torah have an underlying motive of correction and improvement rooted in divine kindness, revealing a trajectory of spiritual ascent that follows after one has faced and overcome these challenges. The idea that correction and improvement are foundational to Torah's intent highlights the threat of divine mercy that underpins all aspects of divine judgment, affirming that every experience, especially the most arduous, holds within it the potential for tremendous spiritual uplift and benefit. From all this, it is understood that even down to the very lowest degree to the person who transgresses in the utmost manner, who through the power of the Torah states a legal ruling that is the opposite of the Torah, meaning that through the matters of holiness themselves they add strength to the opposite side, even there the or ein sof is nimshach present as it reaches downward to no end, in this concluding line of section Hay, the mimer offers an empowering understanding. The infinite light of God is not absent even from those who are the greatest transgressors. Contrary positions to Torah, even those issued through a perversion of Torah itself, do not fall outside the reach of God's sustaining presence. This reinforces the mimer's overarching theme, the all-encompassing nature of the divine influence which extends without limit pervading every state of being no matter how distant it may seem from holiness. As we enter section 6, we'll preface an explanation on Or Ahinsof. Or Ahinsof is a term used to describe the infinite, boundless light that emanates from the divine essence known as Ainsof. This light is not physical light, but a metaphor for the way God's unlimited, omnipresent creative energy sustains and vivifies all of existence. The infinite light or endless emanation of the divine the limitless, boundless aspect of God's presence that transcends creation while simultaneously being imminent within it. It is not a light that is drawn from the infinite, but rather it is the light that is itself infinite, the true infinite. This concept is often associated with the state before the contraction, zimzum, of the divine light to create reality. It represents the divine existence that is beyond all worlds and, in essence, beyond all being and non-being. Atmus Einsof refers to the essence of the divine, the most profound and primary reality of God that transcends all forms and definitions. It is beyond all limitations, including the very concept of revelation and concealment. Conversely, Or Einsof represents the infinite extension of divine light that reveals godliness throughout all levels of existence. The relationship between Or Einsof and Einsof is that of a source and its emanation. While Or Ein Sof is endless and unbounded, it is still a form of Gilui, a revelation of the divine. It is this light, which is withdrawn or contracted, a process known as Zimtzum, during the creation to allow for the existence of finite beings and a world that appears to be separate from the infinite. Or Ein Sof is the root and source of all existence, while at the same time transcending all levels of creation. It is both imminent as it vivifies and sustains all worlds and transcendent as it exists beyond the capacity of any creation to contain or fully grasp it. Thus, Or Einsof is involved in the paradox of being fully present at every level of reality, including the lowest, while still originating from a source that is beyond all forms of being, Atmus, which remains concealed. Section Vav continues by stating, And all this is because the light itself is infinite in essence or essentially infinite Therefore, there is also no limit to its diffusion, 
through the multitude of levels and the order of descent down to the very lowest, and everywhere it extends and spreads, it is without any change or effect whatsoever. This line emphasizes that the Orain Sof, infinite light, is unbounded not only in its existence but also in its ability to reach all levels of creation, including the lowest. Despite the extensive diffusion of this divine light through the myriad gradations and complexities of creation, it remains entirely unaffected, undergoing no change. As we move into section 6, the Mimer builds upon the previous discussion of the Or Ein Sof, imparting vitality to all facets of existence, from the greatest to the most humble. Here, the focus shifts to the intrinsic nature of this light and its character as it engages with the physical world. By asserting the lack of change or reaction within the divine light, regardless of where or how it manifests, section 6 offers a picture of God's constancy and the unwavering quality of his influence, a theme that will continue to be developed. The mimer delves deeper into the nature of the divine light and how it contrasts with the soul's influence over the body. It is not like the analogy of the nishama and the goof, the soul with the body, for the soul indeed can be affected by the circumstances of the body, but the or eloki, divine light that is mech ayam and imehaveh, is not influenced nor does it change at all. Unlike a human soul which can be influenced or affected by the condition of the body it animates, the divine light, the creative and sustaining force of God, remains unchanged despite the various states through which it passes in creation. Any appearance of change in this divine light is due to the medium through which it is channeled or clothed, his labshus, and even then, as we read further, and should there be any change in the light due to its enclothement, his labshus, that is, any change produced by the enclothement, it only affects the kayus that is in the mode of koach. It is known that kayus as koach comes from the kylum of the realms of bi'a, for the vessels of these realms of bi'a are indeed in the mode of existence, Metzius. As stated in the aforementioned Egeris HaKodesh, that the commencement of existence, Yesh, is the Kilim of Bia, and therefore change, Shinui, and being affected, Hispilus, are applicable there. However, in the vivifying light, the Or Hamichaya, um, there is no change or being affected, Shinui, Vespuilus, at all, etc., and that concludes a quote from the previous Rebbe's Mimer. While the Or Ein Sof is constant and unchanging, when this light clothes itself within the vessels of the created worlds, the realms of Briya, Yetzira, and Asiya, collectively called Biya, it seems to undergo change. However, it's clarified that any such change is not in the light itself, but in its manifestation as experienced by these vessels. This discussion centers around the concept of light being filtered or contracted through various vessels or kalium to fit the capacity of different levels or realms. When the light is said to be in the mode of koach, it's expressed through these kalium within bia, levels of creation which themselves have the characteristic of existence, metzias. In these realms, kais can be altered uh, and experienced differently, whereas the essence of the light remains unaffected. Through this explanation, the mimer highlights a fundamental aspect of God's transcendence. The light's essence remains constant even as it permeates and sustains the variable world of creation. As the mimer progresses, we anticipate a more profound exploration of the concept of koach and its relationship to other forms of divine emanation.
The idea here, as the Tzemach Tzedek explains at length in Drush Shalosh Shitos, the second Shitta, is that even in the Kalim of Adzilus, even though they are called Kalim, the concept of change is not applicable to them. This idea is based on the foundation of the Alter Rebbe's explanation, as recorded by the Middler Rebbe, on a Zohar passage, Parshas Vayaitzai, in which God states that his own monin he will not even use. Instead, he'll use those of the lower being, where monin are the concept of kalim, which represent constriction or containment, and the meaning of manin dili are the kalim of atzilos, called his kalim, because they are one with God, ihu vechayohi vegarmohi chad, he and his lights and his kalim are one. And manin dielach, your kalim, are the kalim of the worlds of Biya. This passage elucidates the idea that the kalim in the realm of Atzilus are not subject to the same constraints and transitions as those in the lower worlds. In Atzilus, there is an essential unity between the divine light and the kalim, meaning they are not independent or separate from God. Contrarily, in the lower worlds, Biya, the Kalim do have boundaries and limitations, and the light operates amidst these conditions. And it continues to clarify there, as well as in the explanation in Vishafta from 5562, written in the holy handwriting of the Mittler Rebbe with the annotations of the Tzemach Tzedek, that the purpose of Kalim is to serve as a boundary and constriction to limit and confine the light. However, above in Adzilis, it is impossible to say that Kalim actually limit the light for everything there is godliness. Therefore, it's not possible to say that the vessels themselves are limiting, for heaven forbid to say such a thing about God. This line discusses the concept of the vessel, Kali, as something that typically serves to constrict or define the divine light within boundaries. But within Adzilus, the world of emanation, the vessels do not actually constrict the light as they are within the aspect of divinity itself. In Atzilus, the Kalim reflect the oneness of God and are not separate or limited entities. In the realm of godliness, boundaries do not apply. It would be contradictory to conceive of godliness itself as limited. However, the matter is that in order for there to be a limitation to delimit something else outside the world of Atzilus, this is affected through the general concept of the ten spheros of Atzilus, and specifically the kelim of Atzilus, referred to as monin, but the kelim of Atzilus themselves are without boundary. This line conveys that while the vessels of Atzilus facilitate the process of constriction necessary to delimit and define the divine light for it to be channeled into realms outside of Atzilus, these kelim, despite their role, are themselves unlimited. The essence of these keilim in Atzilus retains the quality of boundlessness, integral to the very nature of Atzilus, which is unified with divinity. The constriction performed by these vessels is only relevant when considering the impact on realms outside of Atzilus. Within Atzilus, they remain infinite and not confined by any limits. This affirms the idea that within the highest realms close to the divine, the concept of limitation does not apply as it does in the lower worlds of creation. The analogy for this is with a human being, a reflection of the above, and that when the power of writing which is in the hand is drawn through the division of the fingers to write a single letter, indeed the power of writing itself, even at the moment of writing one letter, has the potential to write many letters, up to a multitude of letters. 
It is only that it is limited in that what now comes down in ink on the parchment is only a single letter. The analogy of writing is used here to illustrate the infinite capacity of the vessels, Kelim, within Atzilus. Just as a hand that writes one letter retains the potential to write countless other letters, the vessels in Atzilus, despite channeling divine light into specific forms, are inherently unlimited. They do not exhaust the infinite potential of divine expression and are not themselves confined by the functions they perform. The distinction being made is that while the act of writing expresses a finite form, the writer's capacity remains boundless, parallel to the vessels of Atzilus, which are unbounded despite their role in directing the flow of divine light. And we continue reading. It is explained that it is not far-fetched to say this in the world of Atzilus, even though it may seem, how can there be a concept of limitation in Atzilus even to limit that which is outside of it? All the more so, according to the opinion of the Rambam, that he and his wisdom are one. He is the knower, and he is the known, and he is the knowledge itself. All is one. And if the Rambam says this regarding the very essence of the Creator, then at least it is applicable to say this about the ten sephiros of Atzilus. We're aligning the nature of the sephiros within Atzilus with the Rambam's concept of divine unity where God, his knowledge, and the known all form a singular entity. These sephiros, although they appear to delineate divine energy, are in essence not separate from God. They are a unified extension of the divine, highlighting the philosophical stance that even within the realm of Atzilus, there are no true divisions or limitations. The mimer continues with a question about this. However, it still needs to be understood how limitation occurs within the Kalim of Atzilus, Monindile. In the case of a human being, even though the essence of the soul is above all limitation, there can still be limitation within the power of writing since it goes through the hand and the fingers. But in Atzilus above, it is not fitting to say so, for there he has no body nor the form of a body. This passage delves into the complexity of how God, whose very essence exudes infinity, can display a dimension of finitude within Atzilus, specifically given God's formless nature. While a human being's soul can impose limits on its expressive capabilities by using physical tools like the hand and fingers, God lies beyond physicality and therefore transcends such mechanisms of limitation. The mimer prompts us to consider the divine limitations enacted in a realm that is inherently unlimited and non-corporeal. But the explanation for this is because he is the Almighty, and from this perspective, he also has the power of limitation, as it is written in Avodas HaKodesh, that if you say he has power in the infinite but not in the finite, you are detracting from his completeness. Therefore, he can affect limitation even without the kelim that are outside of Atzilus. God's omnipotence includes not only the ability to manifest infinitely, but also the capacity for limitation and finitude. It touches on the critical principle that assigning God power only in the realm of the boundless while denying his power to confine would indeed detract from his perfection. Hence, God can impose limits within the realm of Atsilis even without the intermediary of the vessels that usually effectuate limitation in the lower worlds. Continuing in the Mimer. Based on this, the Rebbe Maharash explains the emergence of the existence of evil as it is written and creates evil. Even though in Atzilus it is written, no evil will dwell with you. 
because since he is the Almighty and his being is infinite, he also possesses the capacity to illuminate and influence in a limited way. Therefore, from this also extends the aspect of and he creates evil. And this is exactly this scenario. For the source of evil is from the aspect of measure, limitation, and constriction. God, despite being the source of infinite light, has within his power the potential to create and enable evil. This potential is a direct result of God's capability to enact measurement and limitation, indicating that even the existence of evil can be traced back to a divine origin, a constriction of the infinite into the finite as part of the divine plan. From all this, it is understood that even in the Kaelim of Atzilus, change and affectation, Shinuivahispilus, do not apply, for they are his vessels, Monindile, and they are above limitation. Yet this is the capacity to limit outside of Atzilus. We've concluded section 6 of the Mimer, which delves into the divine mechanics and opens with the notion that because the light's essence is infiniteness itself, its expansion too is endless across the multitude of spiritual gradations and descents all the way down to the very lowest of levels, the passage emphasizes the unchanging and unaffected nature of this light no matter where it extends and diffuses. Throughout this section, we've explored the implications of the infinite nature of God's light, Oriyansof, and its relationship to existence. We've come to understand that divine light is intrinsically limitless and maintains its unalterable nature as it flows through all realms of creation, from the highest spiritual echelons to the most material aspects of existence. The Mimer clarified that God's capacity for limitation is not indicative of a deficiency, but rather a testament to his complete power, allowing for the existence of finitude within infinitude. As we enter section Zion 7 of the Mimer, we begin to examine the application of the principles we have learned, specifically the idea that change, shinui, and affectation, hispilus, do not pertain to the realm of Atzilus. In section Zayayin, the Mimer extends the discussion about the unchanging nature of Atzilus to practical behavior and leadership inferring that the timeless and unaffected qualities of the divine realm could be an ideal reflected in one's actions and decisions. This section explores how the spiritual truths found within the realm of Atzilus can serve as a model for human conduct, that earthly behavior can emulate the divine constancy that characterizes the highest spiritual levels. The distinction between Yosef and his brothers? Indeed, the distinction between Yosef and the tribes is known. With Yosef, it is written, he came into the house to do his work, to examine the accounting documents, and later he became the viceroy to the king to the extent that without him, no man may lift a finger in all the land of Egypt. Yet, despite this, he stood firm in his service of Hashem in the manner of service in the world of Atzilus. Yosef, despite his involvement in the secular work of Potiphar's house and his elevated status as second to Pharaoh in Egypt, maintained the integrity of his divine service at the level of Atzilus. An unwavering commitment unaltered by his worldly status or the roles he assumed. In contrast, his brothers, and as for the tribes about them, it is said they, they did not recognize him due to their own stance in the service of the Creator as your servants were shepherds, who were in isolation outside the city so that the affairs of the city would not confuse them in their service of the Creator. They had zero recognition of Yosef's method of service, who, while being at a position and a state where all details of the matters of the land of Egypt, the nakedness of the earth, were done through him, his avoda was like, of the work of the world of Atzilus.
The tribes practiced their divine service through isolation, shepherding, preferring solitude to avoid the distractions of urban life and maintain a clear focus on serving God. They could not understand or recognize the manner in which Yosef was able to maintain a high spiritual level amid his deep involvement with what was referred to as the nakedness of the land, the morally bare state of Egypt, an explanation for that difference. The reason for this is because the level of the tribes is in the world of Bria, while the level of Yosef is in the world of Atzilus, as explained at length in Torah Or. And this is what Yosef said to his brothers, Am I in God's place? Which means, see, I am above the level of the name Elohim, Malchus of Atzilus, the source of the worlds of Bia, and not lower than the name Elohim as you are. And since Yosef was from the level of Atzilus, therefore, thought from ordinary worldly matters did not confuse him at all, as explained by the Rebbe Maharash. Yosef's use of the word Hatachas, translated as am I instead of or beneath, indicates his elevated position. While his brothers are subject to the name of Elohim, Yosef's service transcends these constraints and operates within Atzilus. Here, the constrictions associated with Elohim are not present. Yosef's question to his brothers prompts a clarification that highlights a significant spiritual principle. One's format of divine service can correspond with the spiritual hierarchy. His service, unaffected by fluctuations in external circumstances, reflective of the boundless nature of Atzilus, demonstrates an intrinsic unity with godliness. It's a level beyond the name Elohim where the soul is undisturbed by the material concerns that could potentially distract those operating on the level of the lower realms. A higher stable connection with the divine, a level of spiritual focus and clarity that resonates with the unwavering nature of Atzilus. And with this, the statement of our sages of blessed memory is also explained, revealed, and known, Galui Veadua, before he who spoke and the world came into being, specifically known, that it is inherently known before him and is not in the form of enclothement in the form of thought. And it explains that this is what the Rambam says, He is the knower and he is the known, for there are two aspects in the knowledge above, lower knowledge, dias tachton, and higher knowledge, dias elion. This line from the Mimer clarifies that God's knowledge of all things is direct and intrinsic, not something that comes about through a process such as thought. God knows simply because he is the essence of knowledge itself. All is known to God intrinsically, revealed and known, Galui Veadua, the direct and unmediated nature of divine awareness as distinct from cognitive processes, which involve the enclothement of ideas in thought. We distinguish between two expressions of divine knowledge, implying that the more sublime level of knowledge exists within God as innate awareness, whereas the lower level may mimic the knowledge we humans experience, which is progressive and acquired. Lower knowledge, Das Takten, is in a manner where he is the knower, which is, so to speak, in a manner of enclothement, and from this aspect there is change between before the knowing, at the time of knowing and after knowing, and higher knowledge, das Elion, is in a manner where he is the known, that is, it is known before him inherently, not in a form of enclothement. Das Elion is immediate and direct, without the progressive stages associated with human thought processes. This higher form of knowledge reflects an innate clarity in which God knows without the need for learning or realizing. 
Yet, even in the aspect of Das Elion, everything is known to him in detail, as our sages of blessed memory say in Rosh Hashanah that all who come into the world pass before him like Bene Maron, counted one by one, and all of them are scrutinized in a single glance, a single scan, even though they pass one after the other. Even within Dias Elion, where God's knowledge is inherent and non-progressive, it is not generalized or abstracted. Each individual and detail of creation is intimately and specifically known to God, akin to the particular and thorough knowledge a shepherd has of every single sheep. We illuminate the transcendent nature of higher divine knowledge, Das Elyon, in stating that God's awareness includes the minutia of all things. Even though Das Elyon operates without the type of enclothement or process, it fully encompasses the specifics of creation, the Talmudic metaphor from Rosh Hashanah employs the image of Bene Maron, traditionally interpreted by some to mean like sheep, or as some sages explain, as soldiers or stars moving in single file to illustrate the concept of individual scrutiny by God. Just as a shepherd, military commander, or observer of stars would give focused attention to each individual sheep, soldier, or star, God perceives every person uniquely and completely, simultaneously in one glance, Therefore, despite this higher form of knowledge transcending the mechanisms of incremental understanding, God possesses a comprehensive perception that does not omit any detail. This may be beyond human comprehension, but it affirms that nothing escapes God's intrinsic knowledge, reflecting the profound unity within which all creation exists and is known by its creator. This is the concept of particularized divine providence, Hashgakapratis, over every single detail that is found below. God is not only aware of, but also actively engaged in the nuances of each individual's life down to the very thoughts and feelings that precede conscious decision-making. The term Hashgachapratis, like or particularized divine providence, refers to a foundational concept, that God is intimately involved in the minutia of creation. In the Mimer, we are learning about the concept that God's awareness and care are so complete and detailed that they encompass each and every aspect of the world, no detail too small or insignificant. Hashgacha Pratis is like the practical outworking of Das Elyon. It's how this higher knowledge manifests as detailed and specific involvement in the world. In other words, Hashgaka Pratis illustrates that God's Das Elyon is applied to every individual aspect of creation, indicating a direct and detailed level of divine care and oversight. Thus, God's Das Elyon, which inherently knows all, enables Hashgaka Pratis, where God's intimate attention is present with every creation at each moment, including in the formation of our thoughts and intentions. So God's providential care is not limited to overarching themes or generalities, but rather extends to the precise and individual details of creation, illustrating a thorough and intimate care for everything within the world. The dynamics of Hashgaka Pratis challenge conventional notions of privacy and autonomy, as it suggests that nothing escapes God's attention. Even the inner workings of the human heart are revealed and known to him. God's knowledge of our thoughts does not intrude upon or alter our personal experiences because this knowledge is akin to an inherent aspect of God that naturally understands all creation without a cognitive process or development over time. While God knows every detail of his creation, he does not do so through an enclothement in or interaction with the known object. God's knowledge is simultaneously detailed and encompassing, 
enabling individual recognition without becoming involved or affected by the individual peculiarities of each part of creation. This connection conveys a view of God as the all-knowing creator whose infinite knowledge translates into a continuous, intimate relationship with his creation. God's knowledge and providence extend to individual events, experiences, and entities, from the grandest movements of the cosmos to the fall of a leaf. It's a perspective that imbues every moment and aspect of life with purpose. This understanding also underscores the value of each individual and their actions within the larger tapestry of God's plan. With this knowledge, we can approach our lives with a sense of responsibility, knowing that our choices matter in the divine schema. Moreover, it provides comfort in the notion that God's care and guidance are always present, directing the course of events in ways that may sometimes elude our understanding. In essence, particularized divine providence invites us to live with a heightened sense of intentionality and to perceive the divine hand at work in every facet of existence. The mimer addresses a seeming paradox regarding God's knowledge and how it relates to human thoughts. And with this, the Alter Rebbe resolves the issue that appears when understanding that the knowledge of comprehending the thoughts of all creations is higher, such as foreign thoughts and worldly matters, because this is not a method of the thought becoming enclosed at all, but rather that it is in the manner of being revealed and known naturally, just as with Yosef, worldly thoughts did not confound him. This passage tackles the apparent difficulty that if God understands all human thoughts, it would seem to include even inappropriate or mundane thoughts within his divine knowledge. However, the Alter Rebbe clarifies that God's knowledge does not become enclosed in or impacted by these thoughts. Instead, this knowledge is inherent, automatic, and does not change God, akin to how Yosef, steeped in the realm of Atzilus, remained unaffected by mundane considerations of the world he governed. This view explains that the transcendence of God's knowledge allows for his awareness of all thoughts without being influenced or altered by them. And it adds there that we find this also with the leaders of the Jewish people, even in the more recent generations, that this is what the Baal Shem Tov of blessed memory affected, that even though he was down in this physical world, there would be no contradiction at all for him to also be in the higher worlds. The spiritual capabilities seen in Yosef are an ongoing phenomenon among the Nisi'e Yisroel, the leaders of the Jewish people, who also integrate in both the physical domain and the upper spiritual realms. And as the Mittler Rebbe explains, the Baal Shem Tov prayed that he would be able to respond to his questioner about a matter at the time of the ascent of his soul, etc. Namely, that even though in order to respond to his questioner about worldly matters, it is necessary to answer according to the specifics of the question and the questioner, nonetheless, at that very moment, he stands in his service and at his level as if in the upper world. In other words, the Baal Shem Tov's ability to engage in spiritual service at the highest level while still addressing practical matters in the physical world. His prayers sought to maintain his spiritual presence and consciousness, even as he dealt with the mundane, illustrating the profound level of spiritual focus and intention he achieved. And he concludes there that on Friday night, the Baal Shem Tov would be two-thirds above and one-third below, and on weekdays, the reverse, one-third above and two-thirds below. This indicates that this elevation, where mundane matters did not confound him from his service, was not a result of Shabbos, but rather from his own virtue, 
Therefore, he concludes that in the same way, it was also on the rest of the weekdays, just as with Yosef, worldly thoughts did not confound him. And this is because the Baal Shem Tov and Sadikim like him, are aligned with the principle of Galui Veyadua, revealed and known. And in this manner, Tzadikim, who are akin to their creator, therefore, even when they deal with specifics of a question and the questioner are not affected, nor do they change, etc., mirroring the constancy that is part of God's knowledge and presence. Throughout our Mimer, we've been presented with the idea that the highest spiritual realms remain unaffected by change. And this section adds that this quality extends to the conduct of the tzaddikim in their service to God. Their ability to remain unaltered even when dealing with the details of worldly matters emphasizes a central theme, the non-reactive nature of divine knowledge, and illustrates how this quality can be embodied by individuals in their relationship with God and the world. This principle, known as Galui Veyadua, reflects the notion that God's knowledge and engagement with the world, though complete and detailed, does not lead to God being affected or changed by it. Likewise, Zadikim imitate this attribute, maintaining constancy and clarity of purpose amidst the intricacies of life. In section 8, a distinction is made between the holiness of God, Kadosh Havaya, and the holiness found within Seder Hishtalshals. The Zohar states, Ein Kadosh Havaya, there is no holiness like God's. This divine holiness is distinct. In section 6 of the Mimer, the absence of change in the divine light, or in Sof, is attributed to the lack of hislabshus, enclothement. In contrast, section 8 introduces the concept that even when God's holiness becomes clothed within creation, i.e., it is mislabesh, it still does not undergo change, and that's because it does not intermingle. It is not misarev. The Mimer elaborates on this transcendent nature, which is unique and unlike any other within the Seder Hishtalshals. Other forms of holiness within creation, once they become clothed or manifest, are subject to grasping, tefisa, and change. However, God's holiness, even when it manifests, is not subject to this change since it does not intermingle with creation. The distinction in section 8 adds another layer. God's holiness retains its sanctity without becoming affected by the created, even when it engages with it. It reinforces the point that the divine light can manifest in creation, bring existence into being, and enliven it with vitality, all without undergoing change. This contrasts with section 6, which focuses primarily on the absence of enclothement as the reason for the absence of change, while section 8 focuses on the lack of intermingling as the reason for the immutable nature, a characteristic intrinsic to the Or Ainsof, which parallels the infinite nature of God, the Ainsof, and is extended without limitation throughout the process of creation. To delve deeper into understanding within this context, we turn our focus to the characteristics and qualities of Adzilas as part of the broader structure of the divine emanation process. We consider the teachings from sections 6 and 7, which mention Adzilas considered as part of the Seder Hishta Alshalus, the chain-like progression through which God's infinite light descends to create and give life to all worlds, and Dias Elyon. They illustrate different facets of divine revelation. In Hishtal Shalus, there's a gradation of divine concealment and tension between the infinite and finite, where higher seems farther from the earthly perspective and more veiled behind various contractions, Tzimzumim. 
However, the distinction here is not so much about distance or veiling. Rather, it is about how infinite nature of the divine light, or Ein Sof, which retains its unlimited, non-intermingling capacity. Thus, even amidst defined parameters, the or Ein Sof stays unalterable and imbued with the limitless quality of God's essence. The light remains intrinsically unbounded, constant, an extension of the infinite God. This paradox remains crucial to the concept of non-change and further leads to the clarification and the elaboration in section 8. The first line reads, the mimer continues, explaining that the reason there is no change or affectation, shinui veespuilis, at all in the vitalizing light is because it is not intermingled. Lefi she eno miserev. This statement introduces the concept that the light is fundamentally distinct from creation. It sustains and permeates all levels, yet remains untouched, not mixing or blending with the elements it enlivens. This unchangeability underscores the light's infinite nature, and its capacity to sustain without becoming entangled in creation's diverse characteristics and conditions. Back inside, and the idea is, the great distance and disparity between the or einsof and the mata-mata the very lowest levels of creation, is not a sufficient reason for it not to be affected or changed. Proof of this can be seen in the soul's enclothement in the body, which, despite the great distance between them being opposites and their connection being exclusively via God's wondrous accomplishing, as the Rama rules in Shulkanaruk, nevertheless, after its hislab shus, the soul is affected by the occurrences of the body. However, the divine light that brings into being and vitalizes does not get affected or change. And this is because it is not intermingled. The distinction between how the soul interacts with the body versus how the divine light interacts with creation. While the soul, which is vast in nature and differs greatly from the body, can still be influenced by bodily conditions once it is enclosed within it, the divine light, even when extending to the lowest realms, remains unaffected and unchanged due to its non-intermingling quality. We continue with a quote from the previous Rebbe's Mimer. As the Mimer continues, just as it is written, nothing is as holy as God, and it is stated in the Zohar. There are many levels of holiness, and none is as holy as God. God's holiness is not like the many levels of holiness within of Hishtalshlus. The levels of holiness within Hishtalshlus are holy and separated, and their holiness is that they do not come in enclothement. But when they do clothe themselves, there's a grasp, Tefisa, and grasping causes change. Not so with God's holiness, which is what the light is, which is not like the holiness within Hishtal Shalus, i.e. that they do not clothe themselves, that they're not mislabesh. When God's holiness comes into his lab shus, enclothement, there is no grasp, Tefisa, because it does not intermingle. It is not misarev. Similar to tzadikim or spiritual realms that avoid becoming clothed in lower elements, if they do become clothed or manifest, they can be grasped, leading to change or affectation. In contrast, God's holiness associated with the orain sof does not change when it becomes clothed or manifests in creation because it does not intermingle. Or in Sof transcends Hishtalshalus because God's light does not undergo change upon enclothement or manifestation. God, as the source of this light, 
does not intermingle with creation, and therefore it remains unaltered, maintaining its sanctity irrespective of how it is expressed or perceived within the world. In general, holiness, o Kadosh, is a concept that signifies separation, distinction, and elevation. It implies a state that is set apart from the mundane, ordinary, or profane. The Zohar is highlighting the exceptional nature of Kadosh Havaya, emphasizing the absolute and unalterable sanctity of God in comparison to all other forms of holiness. This new aspect introduced in this section provides a more complete picture. It acknowledges that while the divine presence is inherently transcendent and non-intermingling, the dynamics within the spiritual structure do involve transformation and interaction, yet God's sanctity, Kadosh Havaya, does not change with these manifestations. Hence, while the process of creation involves gradations and may require God's light to be clothed within certain layers of reality, in fact, the light remains as pure and constant as ever, maintaining its essential nature of insaf. The Mimer explains that unlike the soul which is affected by its enclothement in the body, the or insaf does not change or react even as it pervades all of creation because it does not intermingle with it, lefi sheyeno misaref. Continuing inside, and it is like the example of the light below, which illuminates and yet is not intermingled. And just like, by way of analogy, light that shines through a glass and there are red, green, and white glasses. There are differences in these appearances, but the light itself is simple and without any appearance at all from the appearances of the glass because it only illuminates through them. And even if it illuminates through them in enclothement, for after the light passes through the glass, it does not appear as simple light, but as red or green, etc., meaning the light is present in a way that is relative to the glass, and in the allegory, it is the enclothement of the light to bring into being and give life. Nonetheless, the light is not grasped, tefisa, because it is not intermingled, misarev, like physical light, Aura and soft shines through various mediums without being altered by them. It remains pure and distinct regardless of the colored glass it passes through. Because of its unmingled and unaffected nature, even when manifesting in different forms. In the same way, it can be understood concerning the divine light and vitality that vivify. Which does not change at all, and there is no change or affectation in it whatsoever. And this is because the light is essentially infinite, therefore its extension too is of an infinite nature, extending through all levels down to the very last and lowest ones. And wherever it extends, it does not change or get affected, rather it remains in a state of essential simplicity, up to here is the quote from the previous Rebbe's Mimer. The concept under discussion is clarified by the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, who differentiates at length between light, or, and power energy, koach. He explains that even the highest aspect within a person, which is the intellect, representing the very beginning of revelation from the essence of the soul, is not in a manner of simple light. Instead, it is in the form of power or energy, implying that it is subject to change and affectation. In other words, even our most lofty capacities as expressions of our soul's energies have the potential to change and be influenced. They are not static like the concept of divine light, which hence remains constant and unaltered. This distinction between expressions of our soul's energies, which can develop and evolve, stands in stark contrast to the concept of divine light, or Ein Sof, 
which is infinite and unchanging in essence. In section six of the Mimer, we address the concept of kohach, power energy in relation to the potential for change in divine emanation through the process of hislab shus enclothement. It was explained that any change that might occur in divine light as a result of its enclothement would affect only the aspect of vitality, tchayus, that is in the mode of power or energy as a kohach, rather than the light itself. However, the actual light, or hamikaya, the light that gives life, is not subject to change or affectation as it is inherently infinite, ein sof beetzim, and does not intermix or become altered by the lower realms it illuminates. This key distinction implies that while energy within these realms can change when dressed in these vessels, light is above such limitations. As opposed to the potential for change in the layers of intellect, intellectual capacity being an example of koach, Divine light remains unaffected because its nature as Ayn Sof transcends the constraints of Hislab Shus that impact the lower realms. Therefore, the infinite light continues to imbue existence within creation without experiencing change, just as physical light remains unaltered despite being perceived through different colors when it passes through varied mediums. Skipping the brackets, we continue inside. Light, on the other hand, there is indeed change between the light of the sun, the light of the moon, and the light of a candle or a torch, but it is not like the change of deeper intellect and more external intellect. The change is not in the light itself, but rather because one light is related to the sun, and one light is related to the moon, and this light is related to a candle and a torch, and because of this they are different and change from one another, but it is not a change in the light itself. While there may be apparent variances in the forms of light observed, the essential nature of light does not change. It's the context, the relationship to its source, that gives the appearance of difference. And it continues there that the fact that below the light of the sun does not illuminate down here as much as it does above is because the sun itself is also a created being and has corporeality. But here we are speaking about a light that is infinite in itself, in essence, and therefore, even when it extends down to the very lowest, it does so in a manner that is endless, intaklis, meaning it does not intermingle, is not affected, and does not change. And the conclusion of the section is, and this is lemata mata, down to the very lowest to no end, where it extends and is revealed even in the most utmost inferior levels. The divine light's nature as infinite allows it to spread and be revealed even at the humblest tiers of existence. It conveys the profound extent of divine immanence, which does not withdraw from any place or state irrespective of its spiritual stature. Throughout our mimer, we've explored the dynamics of the divine light, or Ein Sof. Observing its unique nature as unchanging, non-intermingling, and infinitely extending throughout all levels of creation, the connection between this and Lamata Mata, down to the very lowest, to no end, lies in the emphasis on the light's ability to reach and sustain even the lowest realms without losing its purity or undergoing any alteration. In summary, the Or Ainsof reflects the ultimate unity and omnipresence of God throughout creation, demonstrating that the divine is intimately involved with the entirety of the cosmos, including those aspects that seem distant or lowly. This extension to no end encapsulates the boundlessness and inclusiveness of God's eternal light, affirming the omnipresent sanctity of the divine in all realms. A section test of the Mimer, 
references the continuation of the discussion about the Or Ein Sof and its pervasiveness both at the highest levels and as it descends to the lowest levels. However, this pervasive revelation should not be conflated with the concept mentioned at the beginning of the Otsar, the treasure, which by its nature is hidden and not about disclosure whatsoever. The mimer contrasts the ever-revealing light of the Ein Sof with the hidden aspect of the treasure, with its concealed quality that will be explored further in subsequent chapters. Section Tess reads, And in the following chapters, it concludes the explanation of the concept that the Or Ein Sof is upward to no end, le maila maila ad ein kitz, and there too it is in such a manner, meaning a manner congruent with our discussion today, that everywhere it is found, it is without end. However, these two aspects, upward without end and downward to no limit, are called light. Their thing is revelation, despite being beyond created beings, and therefore, even when extending down to the lowest of levels, it does not intermingle, is not affected, and does not change. This is still not the concept of the treasure, which is something hidden and not at all an idea of revelation. And this treasure is given to a Jew because he is a part of Tzivos Hashem, meant to go to war in the world, beginning with the battle against the foreign god within oneself, the evil inclination, and in a manner that the conquest is the building of Yerushalayim, as stated in the Talmud, meaning to build the Jerusalem within oneself, Yerushalayim, a complete awe or fear. And this is achieved through his avoda in a manner of self-sacrifice beyond even the highest level of intellect, which is the concept of an otzar, treasure of Yerushalayim, fear of God, which exists within each and every Jew by virtue of him being an actual part of God, the aspect of Yekida, called so on account of receiving from the unified no soul one of the world. When a Jew uses this treasure in service to God with complete devotion, they are victorious in the battle. This act of squandering the hidden treasure causes an outpouring of even more precious treasures from above, giving him all of the best, even more lofty than the Orin Sof, which extends to no end and downward to no limit. And that's the general idea of the parable about a king entering a city, accompanied by dukes and earls, etc. Each one claimed the dukes or earls for themselves, but one wise person said, I will take the king himself. This echoes the manner of the Alter Rebbe, who said, Who do I have in heaven? And with you, I desire nothing on earth, expressing a longing not for the lower Gan Aden, nor the higher Gan Aden, but for God himself alone, as the Tzemach Tzedek wrote, and it was also published in print. This obligates each and every one to yearn for only the king, meaning to desire exclusively God's essence, which is even higher than the Or Ein Sof, which extends above without end and below without limit. This is done by a Jew in their service not being influenced by the falsehood of the world. On the contrary, through their efforts and self-sacrifice, holy foolishness, they transform it to create from it a plank for the Mishkan for God. Through this they effect, and I shall dwell amongst them, making a dwelling for God in the lower realms, the nature of which is that it enhouses the very essence of the king, just as he is present and open. And this is achieved through Veshachanti Besokam, within each and every one. We'll add in a note from another mimer that the Odzar, or treasures from above, include also the revelations of godliness brought about by the tzaddikim, particularly the leader of the generation, the Nasi. Despite ascending to higher and higher, the Nasi does not abandon his duty to his community. He embodies the role of a shepherd 
ensuring that his spiritual attainments translate into guidance and care for his flock. This leadership manifests God's presence in a clear and tangible way, extending divine goodness into the practical world, goodness that is, of course, unmarred by any suffering. These actions of the Tzadikim facilitate a broad revelation of God's Or Ensaf so that all may experience and witness the divine dwelling among us, as prophesied that the glory of God shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it.